Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I say a Noni album at the dinner table. Everyone is weeping and you can't look at each other for the rest of the week. Right, right. Um, Lil Yachty album at the dinner table. Everyone's getting super blazed. Clearly, Amory album at the dinner party going to be like an orgy. So you also will not be looking at each other for the rest of the week. the Pitchwork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. So we just published our annual lists that run through our favorite music of the year, and today we're going to talk about the 50 best albums of 2023, or at least some of them. It was a year of brilliant releases across indie, experimental, pop, rap, and R&B, and also a year of some highly anticipated albums that completely missed the mark. To talk about it all, I'm joined by our own Jeremy Larson and Anna Gatza. Hello. Hello. Good to be back. Let's talk about very quickly the process of list making. It's our most read thing, but I think for a lot of the critics involved, it becomes this kind of mind boggling haze of like remembering so much music Mm -hmm. and listening to so much music and looking at spreadsheets and it can become this kind of like massive overwhelming and like honestly like blurried task. If you thought music journalism was just like hanging out with rock stars, let me tell you how many spreadsheets there actually (laughs) is that goes into it. Now, I always want to clarify that I think ranking a list is not about saying this song is better than another song. That's actually literally what what our lists are. Okay, let me say this. That is the two-dimensional idea of ranking, but I think of ranking in a three-dimensional space. And that you're trying, of course I do. So the way I visualize it is that you are creating like a curation in a museum. You're creating a space and you walk into the space and what is the centerpiece? That's your number one album. Mm. That's the first thing you see. That's the that's the big Van Gogh. <laughs> then you walk through the exhibit, and there are some things that are in the secondary tier, and then there are some things that are sort of hanging in the back, you know, as Lord would say, by the stairs. Which is not to say that it's not important. It's still um, the Louvre. It's still the Louvre, you know what I mean? That's kind of how I see it um, and how I sort of think about my year-end list that I've been making for many years. I'm going to introduce the fourth dimension, which is things that were really... <laughs> speaking to me personally, and I'm not a big fan of like a ranked list. I don't feel super motivated to organize my music that way. Although since I work here, I do start my best albums of the year list January 1st when I open that blank Mm -hmm. notes app and Mm -hmm. I say this year, this year I'm going to keep really good track. Everything Mm -hmm. that stands out to me, I'll be writing it down in the moment. For all of the the like metaphorical hand gesturing around like a painting in a museum and the focal piece and all of that, we still publish a ranked list Every year. Yes. We still have many debates about what song is better than another. And we have debates about what album is stronger than another. And when we do that, it is for a reason, in part because we are saying, here's taste. This is taste. This is taste. Yeah. When we are putting these lists together, we're trying to tell a holistic story of a year and be inclusive and expansive in that. Yeah. 
So like jokes aside, there's a lot of effort. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of conversation about all of it. But ultimately also just be like, here's some really good shit. Yeah. Before we get to all of the good stuff, can we talk about a couple of albums that we like really wanted to like that just kind of didn't do it for us? Let's talk about Doja Cat. Okay. I was really interested in this album. We saw Doja Cat kind of do her image makeover, you know, before it came out. She sort of went into her evil era. Mm -hmm. And I thought as someone who was super online, super like tuned into internet culture that she would really have something to say about the nature of evil or temptation or even like the satanic panic or like conspiracy uh-huh. and just like well because she was like prepping this album with imagery of like devil yeah there's, there's <laughs> like devil worship there's, there's devil stuff. horns and there's yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know pentagrams and like people in the comments are freaking out because it makes them uncomfortable and i was like Yes, yes, Doja, like make them uncomfortable. Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the reason that we were excited about this Doja Cat album is because Woman was such a big hit. Kiss Me More was a hit that won a Grammy and Paint the Town Red. I love that song. I'm a demon lord, fall off what I ain't seen the horse. Called your bluff, better cite the source. Fame ain't something that I need no more, cause bitch, I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. So, like, signs were that Doja Cat was on her up and up. We listened to it collectively. We listened to it together for the first time, and I just was like, this is it. I had this idea about, you know, we're going to hear something about the meaning of evil in society and life, like selling your soul to the devil or something, and it kind of just turned out to be like, you know, watch your back because these rhymes are fire. Right. There was a lot of projecting against an invisible antagonist, but in the exact same way over and over again. And I think part of it is just the positioning is a little bit off to me because, you know, she wanted to prove herself as a rapper. And I'm sort of like, from my perspective, you already were a rapper. If you look at Apple Music right now, the cover of the hip hop genre is a picture of Doja Cat. And Mm -hmm. it's like the underdog story just isn't quite adding up. Yeah, I think her sort of dismissing her old music as not good. Like making fluff and pop music and like now I'm a serious artist did her no favors because I don't think seriousness is like what she's great at. I also think that like now you almost feel like a dilettante in a way where I can put on like get into it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, like nobody does this better. Yeah, 100%. Let's talk about another rapper left turn into something that was like seriously projected as this big album moment. And that is the Lil Yachty record. Which I think we all were kind of like, what's this going to be? And I know even Alphonse Pierre, one of our our writers and rap critics, was just like, let's listen to this thing. Like, let's, we're excited to. Yeah, I mean, this is a left turn record. And there have been a lot of them in rap music before, you know, like uh, Paul's Boutique is a classic one. Mm-hmm. Kanye's Yeezus is another sort of like, what are we listening to here? This is something totally new. And so when Lil Yachty did his sort of like psych rock record, his Tame Impala record, Mm -hmm. his sort of 70s jazz funk record, it does sound pretty interesting. But the problem is it's just Lil Yachty's lyrics and singing sort of pasted on top of it. Always keep it playing with my never tripping. I love my mother, my sister, my daughter. All these hoes get slaughtered. Can't mind, pray, tell 
it sounds like a soul and funk record, but the lyrics just sort of sounds like a classic SoundCloud rap. And that it just like doesn't gel for me at all. I think it's an interesting sound. I think people who like grew up worshiping Kid Cudi, I think people who have the Tame Impala poster on their dorm room, Mm -hmm. like they're Mm -hmm. really going to love it. I mean, it really is just sort of an indie who's who on that record. Yeah, yeah. So you'd think it really would appeal to Pitchfork readers, listeners, editors, and writers, but I don't think it really did because he wasn't a study of this. He built the target around the arrow. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's like retro-engineering the records that hip-hop originally sampled. There is a little bit of that. The song Running Out of Time has this incredibly funky, like, Sly in the Family Stone bass line. And that could have been a really interesting concept Mm -hmm. to go back and be like, hey, you know, the birth of hip hop that started with all these like 60s and 70s soul jazz records Mm -hmm. that everybody started sampling to create hip hop. What if we go back and recreate that with live instruments, but then bring in 21st century kind of rapping over that? That would have been a cool idea. But it doesn't work like that. And I don't think it totally gels like as a concept for me. I think it's a perfectly fine record to just like put on in the background and chill out and like vape too. Yeah. Sorry to the Twitter people who are annoyed that those albums didn't make the list. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back onwards to good stuff. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So we all know a lot of the huge albums that made the list. We've done episodes of this podcast about them. In fact, let's talk about some surprising things that appeared on the list, some underrated faves, some albums that might be new discoveries to even Pitchfork readers. What's on the list that you want to shout out as something that maybe our listeners haven't heard I want to shout out, all the way down there in the 40s, this lovely trio from Chicago called Pure Link. Pure Link is Tommy Pulaski, who goes by Concave Reflection, Ben Paulson, who goes by Kind Tree, and Akeem Asani, who goes by Milia. I think I got that right. And they're, well, they're a ambient dub trio. They're the boy band of ambient dub. This record signs... I don't know, it's kind of like an early 2000s down-tempo record meets, like, Boards of Canada meets this ambient label, West Mineral. The Midwest is having, like, a really cool moment with, like, ambient and dub music now. If you don't know one ambient dub artist from the other, I get it. Like, there's a lot of sort of library music ambient dub background out there. Mm-hmm. But I think Pure Link does a really, really good job of creating something very specific and very textured. They add a little bit of a jazzy thing there. Like, it's not all digital. Like, there's a little bit of an acoustic element to it. One of my favorite songs is the song called 4K Murmurs featuring Jay. There is this little like ride symbol that goes through the whole track. 
the contrast with that sound and like the really sort of analog synthy sound underneath it, I'm just a sucker for that. Like I'm such a mark for those two kinds of textures, like mixing with each other. Sometimes with ambient dub, it sounds like you're in a womb, like you're in an amniotic <laughs> fluid. Yeah. I know this sounds a little bit more like you're walking through a city. There is like a grit to it. Yeah. Uh, and I really like that. Although I did see somebody <laughs> say that they had this record on their hypnobirth playlist. Oh. I was so, going to say this record sounds to me like a feather bed, just like lying in it. Yeah. yeah. I'm not walking anywhere. Yeah, so if yeah, you're yeah. a doula listening to this and you're creating a hypnobirth playlist for one of your clients, <laughs> um, check out the Pure Link record. I think that could be really good. Anna G got one. I was going to mention Sofia Cortezas's beautiful album called Madres. You know, if Pure Link is sounding a little sleepy for you, <laughs> step it up. Come to the club with Sofia Cortezas. I love this record because it is sparkling. It is so expertly done. If you enjoy like Caribou or Fortet, you absolutely have to listen to this record. Even though it is like quite upbeat and quite like memorable, it is still an album that communicates a lot more through like rhythms and feelings and not so much words, even Mm -hmm. though there are some words like sampled in it. There's a song called How Music Makes You Feel Better. And like, so good. Just just listen to it. It's like taking a little music pill. Um, It actualizes its title. It truly does. And it doesn't need words to do that. It will just give you that feeling. As Jeremy once said on this podcast, lyrics are important. Lyrics are important. Don't you think? We don't talk about them enough. I'd love to shout out Kara Jackson, Why Does the Earth Give Us People to Love? And I mean, that album title does a lot of saying in and of itself. The title track of this album is about the death of a good friend of hers who passed from cancer a couple of years ago. And I don't want to like settle your first opinion of this album on like glumness and and misery and sadness. But the thing that I love about this artist, she is a folksy singer songwriter who has this really like homegrown Chicago scene around her. I think fellow Pitchfork faves Namdi and San Morimoto and Kaina worked on this album in some way with her. It is a really arresting and beautiful album about kind of like every element of love. I am jarred by how she does so much to represent that title. Like she does talk about death and like the kind of love that comes with friendship, but she also talks about every kind of scorn you might feel towards a romantic interest. (laughs) The one-two punch on this album for me are the songs No Fun Slash Party into a song called Dickhead Blues, (laughs) which is easily the best song on the album by my mind. Damn the dickhead blues Make a vacation out of you Also, this kind of theatrical songwriting that I feel like contemporaries like, I mean, not contemporaries, but maybe, but like Lana does or Mitski does or like Casey Musgraves has done. It's really like simple and arresting at once. Yeah. It's for me. It's written in cursive. Like yes, that's sort 100%. of that's kind of like how I would describe it. But but this line from No Fun Slash Party that kills me every single time is Every person that I've dated tells me I'm intimidating. <laughs> you relate to that, huh? Whomst can relate. 
I want to be as dangerous as a loaded gun. Isn't that love a will to destruct? And isn't that just love a will to destruct? You get put back into your seat. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I fucking love this album so much. There's like choral elements. There's like bitchiness. There's a lot of humor and levity. And then her voice is like at a register that sits in like the bottom of her rib cage. Mm -hmm. And it is fucking beautiful. Can we talk about one other kind of indie fave amongst us? Do you know what I'm going to say? MJ Lenderman. Amore. Amore. The true like cross genre experimental pop queen of this year. Let's talk about the Amore album. Why does it rule? Yes. It has like some pretty explicit themes about partying and getting touchy-feely and like getting money. But (laughs) three things that rule. (laughs) Three things that are great. Huge fan of all those things. But like, even though that's true, you also kind of never know what she's going to say next. And she's Mm -hmm. just got like a totally unique idiom in the way she writes and the way she delivers the lines. Just her voice, just her singing voice sounds like nothing else. Yeah. I mean, I also feel like one fun thing about this album is that everyone has a different favorite song on it. And we saw that in the voting for the year end list. But also when we were talking about the songs, we know how Jeremy feels about astrology. So we can skip co-star for this. Wait, this got, one. there's something I just found out. <laughs> I've been listening to this album all year. I just today listening to co-star realized that the chorus of that song is naming all of the elements that these signs belong to. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, clearly I'm not into astrology either. That took way too long to dawn on me. <laughs> Amore, if you're listening, why are you afraid to talk about Capricorns and Pisces? The only two signs that you don't give. Yeah, that's me and that's you, which is why... Maybe she knows. Maybe we don't like that song. Uh, Maybe she knows. Some of us like that song. Some of us don't. But I think our favorite moment collectively on this album is Counterfeit. She's just like, get out of my way. Like, I'm going to do this song over this crazy Neptune's beat. I looked up the Who sampled for that track by Clips to see, like, has anybody else ever tried to, like, rap on this beat? Like, anyone notable? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, boy, that Who sampled page is empty. It is Amore and, like, two, like, mashup DJs. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has ever tried to touch it. Mm-hmm. I remember when she did our 25 Next cover conversation with a bunch of artists in 2021, she talked about how much of a, like, purposeful music historian she has become. She is someone who will just listen to the catalog of an artist to be like, okay, I understand now, like, what the Rolling Stones were doing or, like, what Fleetwood Mac was trying to do. When you can tell somebody's just like, oh, I I care and love music so much. Yeah. Like, that makes me connect deeper to what they're doing. Obviously, this has been the thing that we were most excited to talk about so far. And I think that that is part of the reason it's near the top of our list. So let's talk about some of the other albums that are at the top of this list. Okay, we've got Caroline Polachek. We've got Sufjan. We've got Feveray. We've got Anoni. We've got Lorraine. What were some of your absolute top three faves? Before we get into the the queen to reign them all, SZA. 
You know, one thing we haven't talked about this year is the Anoni and the Johnsons album. Mm-hmm. This is Anoni's first album with the band in many, many years. And it's a return to form for her. But it's also just a very beautiful, heartfelt album. I have like a playlist of songs of some of my favorite guitar solos of the year. And I would say that the song Rest from that album is yeah. on there. Just a beautiful song. I wouldn't say it's the mission statement of the album, but it is definitely the climax of the album. Of all of the albums that are in our top 10, I don't know, Anoni just seems to people maybe forgot about it or it just sort of feels to have fallen off the radar or there's just not a big lot of press around yeah, it or whatever. I honestly think that it is just such a personal and quiet listen. I mean, Anoni can make me cry very easily. Yeah. And this is an album where, like, with what we are dealing with in the world and the way that she is so able to present that to us clearly in such a heart-wrenching way, Mm -hmm. I think that this is just such a personal album. This is not an album that you want to play for friends. I don't want to feel this aching color of our world. No, I'm not, I'm not throwing this on at a dinner party. We talk about making a list of like tying every blurb on the list to what it would happen if you put it on at a dinner party. <laughs> I say a Noni album at the dinner table. Everyone is weeping and you can't look at each other for the rest of the week. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, Lil Yachty album at the dinner table. Everyone's getting super blazed. Clearly, <laughs> Amory album at the dinner party going to be like an orgy. So you also will not be looking at each other. <laughs> for the rest of the week. <laughs> We're also lighting incense, you know, and charging our crystals under the full moon. Okay, that is your perception of what Amore fans are. I'm, I'm sh- Okay, there's nothing wrong with charging Seth crystals Jeremy under the full moon. Jeremy, crystals as a Christmas present once. I gave you a spell last year, actually. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Which is inside of a candle. Okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> Anna, do you have a fave? I mean, many people's fave, one of many people's faves, Caroline Polachuk. Yeah. But I was listening to it again the other day to prep for this podcast and like, I was really honestly like listening to the B-side a little more, which I think we kind of maybe we forgot about some of these tracks a little bit. But like, I think especially if I had heard this record as like a younger person, it would have really opened my mind to a lot of like possibilities in pop music. Caroline is such a like unique muse that she is clearly following to weird places. And I reflect on how one of the lead singles from this album, Bunny is a Writer, that was our number one song like two years ago. Bunny is a bunny is a, a writer. Yeah, the album cycle for this has been... It's been a long, quite, it's quite been a long, long process. Yeah. But, like, imagine, like, people really love that song. That song was really, like, a cultural phenomenon in addition to being on our list. And, like, imagine being Caroline Polachek and having that fan reaction and that, like, the critical recognition and the pressure and being like, I have to come up with 11 more tracks. Mm-hmm. And, like... I would choke. She did it. (laughs) Okay, so let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the top of our list. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? 
and such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's talk about dun-dun-dun, our album of the year. Jeremy's going to have an aneurysm on the practicalities and logistics of this. It's not that. I'm not going to have it. I'm over it now. It's just, it's hard for my, like, slightly OCD brain to reconcile a 2022 album on a 2023 list. And I'm sure I speak for a lot of people. So for those people, I do want to say <laughs> it's possible to get over it. It's just like a Grammy window. It's just like the Oscars window. The like TLDR here is that anything that was released after our lists were published is eligible for the next year's list. Every once in a while, Pooja will be like, what's your album of the year? Literally every like four weeks yeah, throughout the year. What's your album of the year? I'm like, I, you know, I, like when the Billy Woods album came out, I was like, oh, you know, that's up there. But we always sort of, at the end of every conversation, it's like, uh, does it compare to SZA? And I'm like, I don't know, not really. Like, that was sort of the thing that's been hanging over this whole year is that, like, SZA's been in the pole position the entire year. Like, mm-hmm. what was going to take it out? And mm-hmm. we were all just sort of like... The density of this album, she does, like, a million different things. Like, sonically, in the formats of her song, in the songwriting... In the way that she is both like sharp and cutting and vindictive and extremely funny and extremely like, fuck all y'all, I'm the best. She does it all so quickly and with the kind of like form and skill that you have to be like, wait, did she just say that? Oh, she's but like, then, she's so edited. And like, remember we waited for this album? Remember like, yeah. you know, a year ago, people were like, where's the SZA album? Like it's been, it's taken too long. And like. She was bottling it all up and then is now just like hosing us with it. Well, and, then, and then I got to say, she went on tour pretty quickly after the album came out and almost half the staff went to go see her live and she did it live. So to your point, like obviously she's been working and crafting this and molding it and editing it for a really, really long time. But it shows it fucking lands and then she could do it live with choreo it's still astonishing to listen to yeah you just see so much of who she is the song that i wanted to say is the most emblematic of this is blind right that's a ballad on the front half of the album i want to point out how brilliant this line is which is basically the pre-chorus she says my past can't escape me my pussy precedes me my, my, how the times change. So what was that line again, Jeremy? My pussy precedes me. Mm-hmm. One of uh, my favorites. That's though. the one you were asking for, right? My pussy precedes me. My, my, how the times change. I'm still playing the victim and you still playing to pick me. It's so embarrassing. All of the things I need living inside of me. But like, okay, let's just take this down. I know podcasting is an audio medium, but I just want to like become the editor and the Dinah sentence diagrammer here. The way she uses my past and and rhymes it with my pussy and then goes, my, my, how the times change. This whole line is so dense and so like richly written. That's revealing who she is, but also there's so much craft in there. And then later she's like, I like it when you pull out a gun at a red light. (laughs) Which is a crazy thing to admit. It's like this she's a dark, genius. It's like a dark malevolence. And then she's just also just like flexing. And it's so light. 
I really get like really energized talking about this song. I will say it stays with me that Julianne, who wrote the review, was like she could give Joni Mitchell a run for her money. Um, It's true. Yeah, I don't think that that is too insane of a thing to say. At her best, she can, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have a compliment to yours, which is that obviously the song that had the most impact all year was Kill Bill. Yes. wild there's just so many things on this album where i'm like i can't believe you just said that and like (laughs) that song is one of them and just trusting that her audience would accept it as like you know fiction and fantasy and understand what she's trying to do there even though it's completely different from anything else that she's released in the past well i mean it's literally shakespearean in how much of a comedy and a tragedy Mm -hmm. (laughs) is at once and Mm -hmm. like you can't even hear these lines without wanting to sing them but i'm gonna say them nonetheless which is It's extremely funny to hear her inner monologue of I'm so mature on repeat Mm -hmm. before saying, (laughs) I did all of this on no drugs. I did all of this sober. I'll kill your ass tonight. (laughs) (laughs) This woman is like really, really extremely smart about her self-interrogation and so funny. Let's talk about the song that Jeremy doesn't like. We have a little like face off on F2F. You You see what I did there? This is the punk song on this album, so it has a little different like musical background than the other songs. And I'm not to say that I like it more or less, but I think it's so effective because this is where she gets mad. And the theme of this song is I fuck him because I miss you. It's like I'm having revenge sex yeah. because I can't have the yeah. person that I want. Like it's just about anger. Like it's pop punk because pop punk is what you do like when you're mad and you're like a little <laughs> immature about it and yeah. she knows it. You know, she's saying I fuck him as in having sex, but like she's also just saying fuck you. She's saying like fuck it. Yeah. She's saying fuck him, fuck him, fuck him, fuck my ex over and over again. It's so <laughs> like I love it. I love at the very end. Honestly, one of my favorite lines of the song is the very end. It's just like I try to run, but I don't block him. I fuck him, but I don't cuff him. Again, that super clever wordplay. It's like a sports metaphor. It's a social media metaphor. Yeah, it's like packed in, and it's like eight words long. I do the songwriting credit. Just don't like how it sounds. The songwriter of our time. When we say like this is the album of the year, like not only was it with us all year not only was it really big like cultural impact it just speaks to the time a little bit and you're gonna say like what year did we have like a long r&b album with travis scott and phoebe bridgers on it and it has a punk song and like you know a a quentin tarantino joke and like could only be 2023 and a julia styles reference too yeah I, i mean hands down album of the year Thank you so much for talking about some great music. And obviously, please check out our year-end list to discover much more. It's been great chatting. Thanks for being here, Anna. Can't wait to do it again next year. Thanks, Pooja. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Mark Yoshizumi, Elia Einhorn, and Katie Lau at 3DB are our producers. Ryan Domble is our showrunner, and Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Check out our best songs and best albums list at pitchfork.com. Thanks for listening.